You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. What a stupid question that is. What a stupid question. But I watch you a lot. You ask a lot of stupid questions. U.S. President Donald Trump, characteristically thoughtful and reflective in defeat. My guests Thomas Lewis, Ben Ryland and Melkin Chachoglian will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the Australian Prime Minister's bus tour that isn't, the question of whether ability in a pub quiz should be a determinant of citizenship, and is there any point in remixing, remastering and re-releasing another Beatles album again? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Milken Chachogli and Ben Rylan, and from our Toronto bureau, Thomas Lewis. Welcome all. And we start inevitably in the United States, where earlier this week in midterm elections, President Donald Trump led the Republican Party to a loss of its majority in the House of Representatives, a defeat to which Trump has reacted with all the philosophical equanimity which might have been expected. He has picked several fights with the media, sacked the Attorney General, and replaced him with Jeff Sessions' former Chief of Staff Matt Whitaker who, interestingly, Trump has since claimed not to know. Um, Melkin, by Trump's now formidable standards, how, how crazy have the last 72 hours or so been? And I emphasise by Trump standards from any other politician, of course, this would be a whole world of wibble, 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 but we're operating on different standards here. Bloodthirsty, crazy, Charles I, sort of 1948 <laughs> period. I mean, there, there have been widespread protests all across the country after his second of sessions. This this could well be the straw that broke the camel's back. The the Charles I reference there, of course, a, a deft foreshadowing of the... Uh the citizenship test item we have coming up later in the show. So so thank you for, for knotting the themes together so adroitly. Uh, ben, the, 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 there has been much to enjoy uh, in Trump's uh, reaction to uh, defeat on Tuesday, at least in the House of Representatives, uh, not the least of which has been uh, the whole online world going all um, Zapruder film on the footage of uh, CNN's Jim Acosta uh, having a microphone taken off him. Um, is the row over this... Is this actually significant or is this just the media disappearing into a vortex of self-regard again? I would actually argue this is probably one of the most significant escalations that we've yet seen from this White House. I think you've, you can't overlook the, the optics of what this video represents. Now, the, the actual incident, if you, if you look at how it took place in the news, in the actual news, it was a very small moment. And yet the video that was circulated by the White House, by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the actual White House, is an edited video that was taken from a contributor to the conspiracy website Infowars. The video depicts something that did not happen. This is the White House circulating something that did not happen. Now, I I cannot look at that and think this is not probably the most significant uh, escalation of, of, of war against facts, against journalism. This is the president telling us to either disregard our own eyes or literally get out and don't come back. I mean, I don't know how you can look at that and think, oh, don't worry, it's just Trump being Trump. No, it's not. 
This is him. This is him raising the stakes even further and telling journalists that if you don't play my game, there will be no game. Just to follow that up, Ben, how do you think the rest of the White House press corps should react to that moment? To this, I mean, do we reach a point at which they just make a point of stop bothering to show up for things? Because there's also the, the counter to that is though these. It is, I guess, to a large extent, a total waste of everybody's time asking this administration any questions and expecting a reasonable answer. But they are the administration. They do need to be questioned. Yeah. I, it, funnily enough, uh, I've, I've made the argument before on Monocle 24 that uh, the, the world of sitcoms tend to be a little bit more uh, skilled at getting to the heart of an argument than the news media quite often. And uh, Murphy Brown had a prophetic episode fairly recently where the character of Murphy Brown was actually barred from the White House, had her press pass cancelled, just as Jim Acosta from CNN did, for being a little bit too harsh on the president. The president in that show being uh, Donald Trump, of course, it's set in set in reality. And the moral of the story in the end was that, well, you know, we still to some degree have to play the game uh, to some extent, because if we're not there asking the tough questions, if we all get up and leave because we're principled and we believe in, in freedom of the press and facts and truth, and if you won't give that to us, then we won't be here, who's going to be left? Sean Hannity? I mean, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good functioning democracy to me. Uh, Thomas, in Canada, what has been the reaction from that side of the border to the uh, events of the last few days? Well, I think there has been um, quite a quite a sort of you know keen interest from Canada, as there has been since Donald Trump was elected president. Um, I think the successes of many of the, the historic firsts that took place in many of the races for the House for the Democrats, um, I think a lot of Canadians have been cheered by that, given that so many of them seem to chime with many of the values here and maybe sort of portray a face of the United States uh, that uh, Canadians, many Canadians, uh, would like to see return to its southernmost neighbour. Um, I, I think just to, to chime into what Ben was saying, about the, the Jim Acosta episode, I think it really is extraordinary. And I'm quite sort of surprised that it hasn't perhaps had the kind of coverage um, in the US press, at least, that maybe you'd expect it to have. And I wonder if that's a product of this kind of, oh, well, it's Donald Trump. Uh, so, you know, what do you expect kind of mode, which I think is deeply, deeply troubling. I think when you looked at Donald Trump's demeanor when he stepped away from the podium as Jim Acosta continued asking, asking his questions, this is not the demeanor not only of a president, but of a sort of a person who's in their right mind, I think it's fair to say. And I, I'm just quite surprised that it seems to have been sort of brushed off that something would rile a human being so much as just someone doing their job. And I, I, I wonder whether behind the scenes uh, there are sort of other sort of intimations, a little like that was suggested in the anonymous column that appeared in the New York Times a few a few weeks ago, uh, whether those kind of wheels might be swinging back into motion behind the scenes. I have to say that uh, we, what we've seen in the in the past, uh, as, as as Thomas was alluding to, there is that, that Trump is very skilled at at uh, harnessing the news agenda and using it to his own advantage. Now he knows that. Uh, the the midterm elections wasn't the greatest result for him. And that pr probably explains to some extent his demeanour during that uh, astonishing press conference. But he also knows that if he throws a whole lot of chaos at us all at once, there's only so much we can report and there's only so much that can capture the public's attention. And so the idea of, of him uh, circulating this video was an escalation, as I said. But the other escalation, and perhaps the, the more meaningful one long term, of course, was him firing Jeff Sessions in what 
Roosevelt has to be seen as a dare to the to the Democrats and a public demonstration of his own power, because behind all of that, of course, is the promotion of Matthew Whitaker. Now, the, the uh, this succession uh, for all of this should have gone to the deputy, Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein was already in charge of the Bob Mueller investigation, and that should have been a fairly smooth transition. Importantly, Rosenstein has already been confirmed by the Senate. Matthew Whitaker has not been confirmed by the Senate, and there's no indication that he that that process is even going to be e- even approached. Now there are a whole lot of lawyers out there who are saying that actually, hang on, this is unconstitutional. Anything Whitaker does in that capacity is going to be uh, seen as as invalid, and yet it's going to happen anyway. And just to jump on that, it's not just a simultaneity of what Trump does. It's also the fact that everything becomes relative. So something as colossal as you know, Matt Whitaker uh, effectively taking a principal position w- without being sworn in seems so small in comparison to the, you know, the fury it would have caused in any other administration because there are colossal, chaotic events happening in every single direction. Well, there's much more on that on tomorrow's edition of The Foreign Desk premiering at midday UK time. Uh, let's now move on slightly. Uh, it has been quite the week for aficionados of absurdist political theatre. Uh, in Australia, the newish Prime Minister Scott Morrison, and on recent form, don't spend too much time learning his name, has been seeking to win hearts and minds by undertaking a Meet the People bus tour in Queensland. Except as a couple of petty, querulous journalists have insisted on pointing out Morrison hasn't necessarily been touring on the actual bus, but hopping between stops on a taxpayer-funded VIP jet belonging to the Royal Australian Air Force. The following is an actual recording of actual words spoken by an actual Prime Minister. Oh, I've got to get there earlier than the bus tonight. So you'll be flying to Rockhampton? I'll get into Rockhampton tonight, and I'll be, uh, I've got a, a program tonight in Rockhampton. The bus can't get me there quick enough, okay, so I've got to fly. You'll be to Rockhampton, the bus will catch up with you, and then you'll fly on and Townsville? And you, I'll be flying on the Townsville, and your point is what? He's 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 Schrodinger's bus passenger, Ben. Uh, that that is uh, that that is that is our prime minister uh, speaking there for for the moment at least. Uh, how, how does it, it's weird, isn't it? Scott Morrison's whole pitch to the Australian people, uh, which is he's us and and several million others, uh, in the fifteen minutes since he became prime minister, has been one of earthy authenticity. He he is a bloke with yeah. a capital B. If that's your pitch, that you are honest, down to earth. Um, Etc. Etc. How damaging is is something like this? Oh, I think it's very, very damaging. Although I'm not entirely sure, Andrew, what he has to damage. Uh, <laughs> given the the absolute uh, train wreck that was that power struggle between Malcolm Turnbull and just about everyone in his party, it seemed. Uh, I, I don't think Scott Morrison really had anything to to build upon. There were no foundations left. But uh, this does. This this does show, I think, a particular, a particularly surprising weakness in Scott Morrison because he is he is known amongst Australians as the marketing PM. His his background is in advertising, in marketing. He famously oversaw the tourism campaign that had, uh, I think, it was Lara Bingle all over televisions around the world saying, "Where the bloody hell are you?" Um, that all right. So that was probably a bad example because that was banned in a lot of countries for for being a little bit disrespectful. It worked, and, though. And, uh, it, it was it, in fact a remarkably work. successful campaign. It did work, but I don't think it necessarily had the d- look. It got people talking about it. I'm not sure that it had the desired impact of actually bringing people to Australia and uh, and promoting the country as as a positive place for for tourism. But look, getting back to the point. Uh, 
this this doesn't make Scott Morrison look good. But at this point, what could make Scott Morrison look good? He, he the 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 mood in what, Australia what if, what at the if moment. What if he was to rescue a drowning koala? Uh, yeah, that might be all right. I'm not sure it would win the election. <laughs> I'm just not uh, sure. If, if, if his people are listening, they, they can have that for nothing. Um, Thomas, I suspect that this is not a subject which is dominating conversation in the, the bars and saloons of Saskatchewan and Alberta. But but nonetheless, does this, does this strike you as something which would damage any politician because the thing is that there are there are PR screw-ups which everyone can laugh off rise above move on from and then there are those which just haunt somebody which become inextricably associated with them throughout their career does this strike you as one of those um, I think it probably does strike me as one of those. I think it calls to mind the, the stunt that the Labour leader in the UK, Jeremy Corbyn, pulled back in 2016 when he publicised himself sitting on the floor of a crowded train as evidence that the railways in the UK should be renationalised. when actually it turned out he had a seat booked all along, reserved in first class or something, when the cameras had been turned off. Uh, and I think, you know, look, has that done lasting damage to Jeremy Corbyn? Well, he's still, still the leader of the Labour Party all these years later. I think a comparable maybe example here, which maybe doesn't quite fit uh, in terms of the way that the, um, Morrison was trying to portray himself, but earlier this year, Justin Trudeau uh, went on a rather ill-fated official visit to India. And uh, despite, you know, scoring lots of big sort of trade deals and things with India then, um, the thing that most Canadians remember that for is this photo opportunity where Justin Trudeau and his family, all smiles, were dressed pretty over the top, rather elaborately, in traditional Indian clothes that are, the Indian media pointed out, usually reserved for weddings. And the whole of India, so we're told, uh, was laughing their heads off that Justin Trudeau and his family were standing there in this very ostentatious clothing. Uh, And that actually is an episode that really has haunted Justin Trudeau and is he is reminded of rather frequently here. Uh, Melkin, I I was trying to think of my own favourite backfiring political stunts. And the the, the one that I kept coming back to, and I, I think it is much underrated uh, was was what became known as the Ed Stone, um, and that was during the the last not the last general election here in the UK, but the one before that, when then Labour leader Ed Miliband actually posed with literally that, a a stone tablet into which were literally carved Labour's promises, which I I just thought was such a glorious example of the idea that an organisation can only possibly have when nobody in that organisation has had a night's sleep for about five weeks, which obviously is a description of any political campaign, to the extent that they didn't even spot the obvious Ed Stone gag which was which was the one that was uh, it, it, it's a thing of beauty i often wonder where it is now i suspect not in ed miliband's garden uh, to the british museum i think it, with the rosetta stone it, it, it really should be <laughs> or, or, or in trafalgar square so somewhere where it can be uh, venerated by the public did you have a particular favorite political stunt uh it was a Ed, no, was it David or Ed Miliband eating a eating a bacon sandwich? It was Ed Miliband, sandwich. With, the, it was Ed Miliband with the bacon sandwich. There we go. David Miliband with the banana. Ed, okay, so the bacon <laughs> sandwich. Those, is my fr- those no brothers one. should just never eat. Exactly, it, it's impossible to look graceful eating anything on camera. Full stop. Let alone if you're Ed Miliband. And I mean, it's the classic event. As the same with Scott Morrison here. He's trying to be a bloke. He's trying to be a normal man, and that superbly backfires. The best thing is just to maintain a poker face at all times. Make sure you're never seen eating anything. Or, <laughs> But it, but is the thing, though, Ben, are the, are the ones that stick the ones that kind of confirm what people suspected of you? 
the ones that stick are the ones that that make it so easy to ridicule you. I mean, there is no uh, there is no uh, 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 thing in popular culture that people are just itching, always desperate to ridicule more than a politician. It's it's built into just about every one of us. If you're not a politician, you want to ridicule a politician. That's just how it works. How do you think you'd favour in the political limelight? Do you think you'd have an enormous backfiring, an enormous <laughs> muck-up like that? I doubt very much that I would ever make it to to politics. I, I'm not. I'm one of those people that if you ever saw me talking about sport or kissing a baby, you'd just know that's not natural. <laughs> that, that doesn't suit him. He's, he's, he's really, trained. really trying there. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Andrew Muller, along with Ben Ryland, Thomas Lewis and Melkin Charchoglian. Coming up next, could you name Henry VIII's successor if your citizenship depended on it? How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, and it was Edward VI. Still with me are Melkin Chartrogli and Thomas Lewis and Ben Ryland. And let's look now at the United Kingdom, where the people in charge of this kind of thing are revising the country's citizen te- citizenship test, indeed. Apparently in response to a flurry of applications from EU residents attempting to secure their position in advance of Brexit. Get out, you fools, and save yourselves. It's too late for us. Uh, the UK is not alone in requiring putative citizens to sit an exam, but its test is one of the most stringent, drifting occasionally into historical obscurantism and debatable assumptions about national values. Um, Thomas, I'm not um, aware of your long-term plans vis-à-vis Canada, but were you to sit a Canadian citizenship test, how, how confident would you be? Oh gosh, not very confident at all. <laughs> I, I, I know some, maybe some of the sort of the obscure, obscurer parts of of my adopted home for the time being. But I would definitely have to do some brushing up. I, I knew is that you know things that maybe aren't um, that kind of you know relevant perhaps to to Canadians um, you know day to day life really sort of strike you as a newcomer as kind of things that are really wonderful and things of joy. Something that springs to mind uh, are Sharon Lois and Bram. They are they are the most one of the most famous children's entertaining troops in Canada. And I met two of them when I in my first week in Toronto. Never heard of them before, and they've become a defining sort of bread in my time in Canada so far. A friend of mine did uh, get to become a British citizen earlier this year, and I was mortified that on the tests that he took, there were very few questions about Wales, which is obviously <laughs> I'm from. And I think that should be the top of any any new person's understanding of the United Kingdom, frankly. Well, well, obviously. I, I have to say I'm broadly in favour of the idea of citizenship tests, if, if only because new citizens to any given country can then teach that country's history and traditions to the people who were actually born in it. Um, 
Melkin, what should be in one? The United Kingdom, for example, the country in which we are sitting, uh, what should what questions would be fair ones well, to ask? I've sat a citizenship test to become a citizen of this country. Amazing. I, I actually failed the first time round, which I felt really indignant about because, you know, you've been here for years, you have a university education, you speak <laughs> fluent English, but suddenly you don't know how many constituencies there are in the UK. How many are there? 600 and something. 50, you unpaid patriotic pig well i'm not i'm not i'm not, I'm not a citizen and clearly okay, that's I'm, fair I'm, enough, and that's clearly i'm never going to become one but um <laughs> i mean there are some very obscure questions like for example which flower is associated with wales turns out it's the daffodil, daffodil. okay you can stay i can't apparently I, I can hear thomas seething all the way from toronto and I'm, I'm sorry thomas but on a more serious note i do think that these tests are important um some of the questions are a little bit ridiculous such as in the uk is it okay to hit your wife uh, almost to kind of Cull the We the should be clear that the answer to that is no. Exactly. So it's almost a bit ridiculous that they put in such questions. But, you know, integration is a huge part of becoming a citizen of the UK. It takes a very long time. It's a process that requires a lot of dedication. Uh, and so I do think people's knowledge of their country does have to be tested. See, Ben, we were discussing this earlier about what should be in the citizenship test for our country, i.e. Australia. Uh, and, and I did cite what I what I maintain. It's, it's not just my favourite Australian fact. It is my favourite fact of all time, which is that the post office box of our national broadcaster, which is PO Box 9994, uh, is Donald Bradman's test batting average. And it's the second time <laughs> You've you've told me, and I and I forgot it from the time you told me from uh, before the show to now. So thank you for reminding me again. Well, well, I've, I've saved you from having to hand in your passport. <laughs> uh, that, that is something that people should know. But what? But about somewhere like Australia, what aspects of our history do you think are actually important that a new citizen should understand? Well, let's start with the current citizens. I think the current citizens should absolutely know uh, some of the basics about our political history because it's astonishing it that is. there are so many Australians who don't know. How what what year federation happened? Uh, the, any of the basics about the party system? Uh, any any sort of history about past prime ministers? I didn't learn about any past prime ministers when I was in school. I do think it is quite astonishing. But uh, but this this these sorts of rows about what should be in the in the citizenship tests always pop up, and I think for one core reason, the questions always seem to be designed. Uh, by people who who have a, a little bit of a a, a toffee nosed historical snob attitude towards what uh, what people should know, I think. Uh, might be a crazy idea, but perhaps we should let primary school teachers set the questions of what new citizens should know, because they're involved in teaching young people all the time, right? So they've they've got this uh, uh, well-trodden experience on on what what young what what sparks young people's curiosity in in the country that they're growing up in, and surely that would be a fairly similar thing to people who are coming to the country anew. And uh, I mean, these are these silly questions like that go right back into history or that venture too far into sports obscurity, you don't need to know that to well, assimilate. I mean, you I'm... need to know what it means to be an Australian or to be British. I mean, I, I, I disagree on the grounds that I am a toffee-nosed history snob, so so, <laughs> so obviously I would. But, but Melkin, that is an interesting question, though. But when, and to go back to your own experience of sitting, sitting this test, when you start getting question, out of questions of fact, whether they're relevant or not, and into questions of value... Um, or values, how can you possibly def- how can you possibly define those well enough for a multiple choice question? Well, that's the thing. I actually failed the first time around because a lot of the questions. Are you some sort of communist? Exactly, and I do come from the former <laughs> USSR. Um, I failed it because a lot of the questions are one, number one incredibly 
gray in the way they're phrased, uh, don't always have a clear answer. And yes, are, are based on values. Simply because the value you have contradicts what is actually apparently the correct answer does not mean that you are not suitable to be a citizen of the United Kingdom. You're not saying, oh, of course you should be executed for drinking outside. You know what I mean? <laughs> Th- these are very small nuanced differences. Factual information, uh, you know, of course. Uh, I don't quite agree with Ben. I think history questions are important. Although, of course, you can argue, you know, till the cows come home, what history constitutes important national regalia. And I think what we doesn't. have, there's, there's too much argument as to what, what kind of history matters. And I know that I speak uh, of this from the perspective of someone who's more in the arts than sport. But for some reason in Australia, and I know, Andrew, you'll know why, but sport in Australia always carries a lot more importance than a lot of culture. And I I think, sure, everyone knows about Don Bradman in Australia, but does anyone know who the first Australian was to win an Oscar? If that were on the citizenship test, I think all Australians, bar some of those in Victoria where I'm from, would probably lose. Okay, I don't actually know that. And before we move on, you're going to have to tell me because it's going to drive me nuts. I just made that up on the spot, but I'm pretty (laughs) sure it was Dame Judith Anderson. Okay, I'm going to check afterwards. Um, But finally tonight, on the subject of uh, Pillars of British Values, it's 2018, and that means that the next Beatles album to get the 50th anniversary reissued treatment is the White Album, or as it is known to friendless, halitosis-stricken bores, the Beatles, actually. The actually eponymous double album that they couldn't be bothered to think of a cover design for has been remastered by Giles Martin, son of original producer George, and bundled with alternative mixes, demo recordings and hours of other studio floor sweepings that no sane person is ever going to want to listen to. Uh, I may have given there, Thomas, some subtle hint of my own general views about repackaging, remixing, remastering, etc. Are you agog uh, to hear all this extra arcane stuff? Stuff. <laughs> I, I'm agog just sort of generally, really, Andrew, in most of life, <laughs> as it falls around me. Um, I, when I sort of saw that we were discussing this story, it sort of brought to mind, I went to the, the world premiere, this isn't me sort of tooting any horns, but I went to the world premiere of an opera in Montreal last year uh, that was an opera take on another brick in the wall, the, obviously the Roger Waters sort of masterpiece. And sorry, and hang I on, have an, to op- say, an operatic version of Pink Floyd Floyd's a brick in the... Tom, that, that, that is what hell is going to be like. <laughs> well, just, well, just, you know, hopefully they'll welcome me through the doors with open arms then because I quite enjoyed it, Andrew, frankly. And I must say, kind of seeing this, uh, the way that the composers had sort of transposed that album into a new context, I thought actually worked really very well. And by the sort of curtain came down at the end of the second act, you could feel a pin drop in the audience. And it was Roger Waters was there and he was obviously very emotional about this. And I think when you do approach something that is so well known, so iconic for for however many reasons, and you approach it thoughtfully and you're adding something new, which is no mean feat. And I think it can be quite gimmicky to sort of take an anniversary and just sort of, you know, relaunch all these albums. But I think in this case, it really did feel like kind of a new kind of work of art that was very much rooted in the old one. And I think it really was quite a moving experience and I loved it. See, I, I wouldn't want anybody to get the impression that I don't think the White Album or the Beatles actually is is a great record. It is it is clearly a great record. And, and the thing about the Beatles, because they're one of those bands that you're going to hear all your life, whether you try to or want to or not, I do think, Melkin, you occasionally forget to actually listen to them, i.e. sit down and actually listen to the damn thing and be reminded of what an astonishing work it is. Is there an argument, do you think, that this kind of repackaging, remastering at least encourages people to do that and perhaps exposes new generations such as the one that you belong to to these things 
Yes, it does. And maybe, you know what, now I will go home and listen to the Beatles for the first time ever, because I've never actually sat down and listened to the Beatles. You I've should. I, th- I think they have promise. I think so. I think they could go far. <laughs> we should get them in the studio one day. But, you know, you, you kind of hear them parenthetically, hear them in films, etc. But yes, I do agree with you. It does have a certain value. You know, it gives. it's like doing a retrospective, a retrospective of an artist at a museum. Um, you know, it might not be current, but it's nice to reintroduce it to a different generation. What do you think, Benny? Are you particularly interested in, in hearing demos or alternative cuts or outtakes from, from records you know and love? I, 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 I know this is counterintuitive coming from my background as a rock critic, etc. This stuff has just always bored me absolutely rigid. <laughs> yeah, I think when you're talking about demos and, and stuff that uh, was ended up on the cutting room floor, usually it ended up there for a reason. So I do understand your, your point, Andrew. But at the same time, this isn't really aimed at new fans, is it? It's not aimed at, at encouraging people to, to get involved. It's, even a, though it's it aimed might. at people who don't know what to get their uncle for Christmas. Well, maybe, yeah. But I just think if you're one of those people that just lives and breathes and worships everything that the Beatles were and and are today, then sure this is going to be this is going to be quite nice i can think of a million films that i've just watched over and over and over again and i just think and you know, oh i wish there was just something more to this and i probably would go and consume a few extra minutes of a scene even though that scene was cut for being terrible i'd be still fascinated to know what it was and you know to see the people that you've watched so many times doing different things it it is it is fascinating it doesn't necessarily add anything artistically to the original vision but that doesn't matter because the original vision is still there as well well that does bring us to the end of today's show ben ryland melkin charchoglian and thomas lewis thanks for joining us at midori house the first australian to win an academy award was in fact ken g hall in 1942 for his documentary kokoda frontline in the best documentary category. Uh, Ben, you can hand in your passport at the embassy later. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Gabriel Delasanti. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Mark Asipi. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. You may recognise the band playing us out. Thanks for listening. 